I'm Tannis McDonald. Welcome to Watershed Writers Podcast. In this podcast episode, we ask about age. What if artistic experimentation does not decline with age? Are many of our assumptions about aging just flat out wrong? Listen in as we talk with author Emily Urquhart about her new book, The Age of Creativity, Art, Memory, My Father and Me, featuring her father, painter and sculptor, Tony Urquhart. Emily also speaks about the use of folklore and science as portals to understanding, and of course, about the delicate art of writing the family memoir. We're glad to have you join us. This podcast series is for readers and for writers, for people interested in how writing works and why it's vital to where and how we live. We record in the Grand River Watershed region, the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We feature interviews with local novelists, poets, playwrights, and essayists, and offer a showcase for a community of nationally known writers, as well as writers who are just getting started. You can find more about future podcast episodes on our website, watershedwriters.ca, on our Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast channels. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Watershed Writers, we are sharing our anticipation, excitement, and curiosity. We are listening local, talking global with you, our audience. My guest this week is Emily Urquhart the award-winning author of two books of nonfiction who makes her home in Kitchener. Her writing has appeared in the Toronto Star, The Walrus, Long Reads, The Rumpus, and 18 Bridges. Emily has a doctorate in folklore from Memorial University of Newfoundland, and she uses her expertise in folklore and the stories we tell to expand her investigation into some hard questions. Her first book, Beyond the Pale, Folklore, Family, and the Mystery of Our Hidden Genes was McLean's bestseller and a Globe and Mail best book of 2015. Her latest book is called The Age of Creativity, Art, Memory, My Father, and Me. And it features conversation about art and art making with Emily's father, the abstract expressionist painter, Tony Urquhart. In this book, Emily Urquhart conducts an investigation into late stage creativity. And among other questions, she asks, are many of our assumptions about aging just flat out wrong? Is it possible as we age into our 60s and 70s that our best work is ahead of us? Can we really put an expiry date on creativity? Asking, and answering these provocative questions earned Emily a spot on bestseller lists. In 2020, The Age of Creativity was named a book of the year by Quill and Choir, by Toronto's Now Magazine, and by CBC Books. Emily grew up in Waterloo and Wellesley and has lived in Victoria, St. John's, and parts of Europe. I met Emily shortly after she moved back to the Grand River region because she served as the Edna Stabler Writer-in-Residence at Wilfrid Laurier University for three months in the winter of 2018, and she was working on the age of creativity then. Here's what others say about the age of creativity. 
Nonfiction writer Kyle McClear describes it as a gift of a book, an ode to an ode to late style, a daughter's devotional, a fascinating dive into art history, but above all, a radical detonation of accepted notions of aging and art. Joanna Pocock notes, this beautifully crafted memoir celebrates the longevity and the universality of the creative spirit alive in us all. Now, you may not know this, but the Watershed Writers team is distinctly and proudly multi-generational. This quotation from the age of creativity is fitting for us as a team and for everyone listening to rethink youth, age, and other categorizations. And it goes like this. The fundamental misunderstanding of our time is that we belong to one age group or another. We all grow old. There is no us and them. There was only ever an us. Welcome to Watershed Writers, Emily Urquhart. Thank you, Tanis. It's so nice to be here. It's nice to see you again. It's been a couple of years since I've actually seen your face. Part of that is due to the pandemic, and I'm sure part of it is due to uh, your busy schedule. I would say definitely a bit of both, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you just came out with a new book last year, did a pandemic launch, right? The Age of Creativity, Art, Memory, My Father and Me. I'm interested, of course, in talking about the new book. But first of all, I want to uh, note that, of course, we're uh, recording this in the Grand River region. And you uh, grew up here, moved away, and have lived all over Canada and Europe and have returned to Kitchener fairly recently. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to come back to the community and talk about some of the samenesses or differences that you found since you've uh, lived in, uh, yeah, lived all over the place and then uh, come back? Well, it's, it's funny that life uh, became a circle in that way because uh, my family ended up here because my father was employed by the University of Waterloo. So we didn't have a long family history with the Kitchener-Waterloo area, but it's where my father was employed and how he supported our family and, and, and where I grew up. So I do feel, I have a strong feeling about the community in the greater region. And then I had lived all over and before moving here most recently, I had been in St. John's, Newfoundland for six years and then in Victoria, BC for almost four years. And my husband was looking for an academic job. We wanted to come back to Ontario and a job at Waterloo came up and it hadn't occurred to me to move back here, not for any reason, but I just hadn't really thought of it at that point in my life. But I had been, I'd been here for a conference about two years before he applied. And I remember looking around at this place and thinking like, this is really nice. What a great place. God, I, I barely remember it, which is one of the reasons being that I actually didn't grow up in, in the city. Yeah. So, so I was pretty excited and, and quite happy when he got the job. But the, the truth is we grew up or I grew up in Wellesley in the small town in Waterloo region. And I was in Waterloo until I was seven, but the years that I most remember from, from living in this region were rural. And when I first moved back here, I felt like I couldn't go back to the rural landscape. I just couldn't go back to Wellesley. I knew there had been a lot of growth and I felt like it was gonna be upsetting or sad, or I'm not really sure. I made a friend through a book club actually, who is a midwife who practices in Wellesley. And, serves actually quite a lot of the old order Mennonite community. And she lured me back with a Christmas party. And I went back to my hometown and it was actually the night of the Christmas parade. And she had friends from all over and they were 
it's a couple from the city who had kids who were who had kids who were about our kids age and we stood with them watching the parade and there were a lot of tractor combines with disco balls hanging from them it was a very agrarian celebration and they were kind of making fun of it and I really was wounded by that and I got my back up and I thought okay yeah no I'm from this place <laughs> this is my place and you can't make fun of it I guess I thought maybe I wasn't of this place and then I realized I really was <laughs> no I, I think it's a good answer I think it's a very straightforward answer um and I think it, it leads right to something that I wanted to ask you about you studied to be a folklorist in university and uh when you were just talking about no don't make fun of this local culture I thought that too has its roots in uh, an interest in what underlies culture right how culture is made and the stories that we believe in I think you're being having a folklore uh, background, a scholarly folklore background, has a great deal to do with what you write and how you write it. Can you say a little more about that? Folklore is, is, is so interesting. I came into folklore after having a background in journalism, which is funny because we assume folklore is fiction and journalism is fact, although the two, you know, <laughs> sometimes they cross over. And, and I remember in graduate school having the sort of first meeting and the head of the department, the first thing she told us was something she learned when she entered folklore and started studying folklore, and it was first do no harm which is very, it's very different from journalism. Like, and, and that's important. We need journalists to, to do harm, to tell important, difficult stories. And sometimes people get thrown under the bus along the way, but with folklore, it was a gentler approach. And it was this approach where, particularly where you're speaking to people about their beliefs. And that's very, that's a very vulnerable position to put someone in to say, you know, so your family, uh, has a, a strong belief in, in fairies. And, you know, people can get made fun of for believing in the supernatural or it can be taboo. And, and so you have to come into that relationship with a sense of trust, giving the person the benefit of the doubt. Well, maybe I don't believe in fairies or maybe I do, but that shouldn't matter because it, it's real because that person does. And you have to make that pact with the person if you're going to go in and start asking them questions about their belief and their culture and their background. And I think it's kind of an important worldview in general, I think, to better understand each other. So I don't have a, a religion. I have never, I haven't grown up with, a, like, a, I've never been baptized. I don't go to church. I don't have a God that I believe in. But that doesn't mean that it's not real, particularly for another person. And I th really think religion and, and supernatural beliefs are are not that far apart, uh, but we give one respect and the other can be taboo. Indeed. And when it comes to nonfiction writing, of course, that kind of respect is, is very important. And both of your books look at a kind of folkloric belief in particular kinds of tropes, ways of being in the world. So I'm interested too, because both of your books, Beyond the Pale, Folklore Family and the Mystery of Our Hidden Genes, and the new one, uh, The Age of Creativity, have to do with writing about family. And I want to ask you that because a lot of our listeners are, are writers and, you know, I think people struggle with this idea of writing about family. And I know whenever I teach um, nonfiction writing, people say, oh, I've got this great family story, but I don't know how to tell it. Part of what I often assign as an exercise there is research. And everyone's like, oh no, don't make me do research. <laughs> but for you, uh, research, research is really the backbone of, of both of these books. 
yeah, I'm interested in what happens when you bring both folklore as a study, but also an interest in the science behind things that are going on in family, whether that be a particular conditions or the way things are perceived or this idea of a, of a third age uh, in aging. Can you talk to me about, yeah, writing science when it comes to writing place and home and family and relationality? I never would have considered myself a science writer before Beyond the Pale, actually, or, or maybe before the article that I wrote that preceded it. I worked for a number of different news outlets when I was younger, and one of them was Chatelaine magazine. And I was, gosh, I think my my title was maybe editorial assistant, but it was nothing so fancy. I was a fact checker. And <laughs> I was tasked with fact checking a lot of the health plane is has a large section that is devoted to health and that is science and you have to get your your facts correct and so i would be tasked with that and i would have these papers published in medical journals and i would have to phone up scientists and ask them questions and and try to understand at the basic layperson level of what it is they were trying to communicate. And that really opened my eyes because I understood that, yeah, you can look at this, be an academic journal or an academic article published in a medical journal, and it seems very confusing and complicated. But if you just keep asking the right questions, you're going to get a response that makes sense to you and that you can communicate to a wider audience. That was quite astonishing to me. It may, it took a lot of the fear out of of trying to communicate science. And so using that background, I was able to start looking into the various medical scientific aspects of what I was looking at, which is albinism, the condition that my daughter has. And just to explain, it is, it's a genetic condition and it's recessive, meaning both parents need to be a carrier in order to pass it on to their child. And people with albinism have little to no pigment in their skin, hair, and eyes. And it always comes with uh, varying degrees of, of low vision and it can be better or worse, but it's usually around the legally blind mark. So I had to understand a lot about genetics and a lot about, you know, even how melanin works and things like that. And in order to, to be able to communicate what I was writing about, which was actually a very personal memoir about becoming a mother for the first time and sort of understanding human differences at a fundamental level when my child was born differently than I had expected. So it, it was empowering, I think. I mean, it was empowering back in the days of Chatelaine when I realized I could understand those medical journals and, and communicate what they were trying to say. And then it was empowering when I took it into my own life. And even going into the doctor's offices and having meetings, being able to, I recorded them all. And, and then I could go home afterwards and listen to them and, and do more research and kind of do what I used to do at my journalism job, but just for myself. And then ultimately, I, I wasn't doing it to publish at the time, but ultimately I did end up writing about it. I know at one point, a couple of years ago, you and I were talking about Beyond the Pale, and you said that if you were writing it now, you would approach it differently. And I mean, part of that, of course, is about being at one stage in your life uh, as you're writing and, you know, being in another stage of your life. Can you say uh, like a little more about that? What would you have done differently and why? That's an interesting question. And I can't really remember why I might have said that, but I, I have some ideas. One being that just, as you said, the, you know, the nature of becoming a different writer and also becoming a different person and knowing more. I couldn't write that book now because... I'm so far away from that stage. It's been yeah. 10 years and it's such a, this is so cliche about that whole fleeting, <laughs> the early stages of the baby's life and how fleeting it is, but it's also true. And it's also true that you forget a lot of 
what happens and a lot of what is very emotional and important to you, it is harder for me now to go back and understand those emotions in the same way. And I know this because I work as, uh, I have a position as a parent liaison with the uh, National Organization of Albinism and Hypopigmentation. So what that means is that I, in Canada, it's mostly US-based, but in Canada, I'm the person who, if someone with a newborn with albinism phones this organization or contacts them and says, I want to talk to someone, if they're anywhere from Ontario all the way to Newfoundland, I'm the person who gets in touch with them. And we do it really, it used to be called rapid responder because we do it right away. It's been years now that I've been working with these parents and I'm finding lately, <laughs> finding it harder to remember how important those emotions are and how important they are pegged to very specific things like baby milestones that I'm having a harder time remembering. You know, saying, well, when is my baby going to roll over? I'm really worried. And of course, I, no one can really answer that because all babies are different, even babies with albinism. I'm having a harder time remembering even what that felt like to watch my baby not roll over when everyone else's babies were rolling over and when exactly, at what point I was. And there's that, there's just the, the changing in the movement. But I think also there's been a lot more interesting and important works on disability that have been published since I wrote Beyond the Pale and I've learned a lot more. Of course, I couldn't have been prescient and, and, and <laughs> you know, guessed what works would be coming out that would influence me since writing that. But one example might be how um, I wrote about person first language and I felt like that was something important and progressive, but and this is just when you were speaking about someone with a disability rather than saying they are disabled. Yeah, rather than saying they are disabled, you say they are a person with a disability. But the thinking on that has changed and that's come out of the disability community and advocacy and, and, and research uh, largely led by disability scholars. And so, so I would go back and change that or at least talk about it, you know, and, and say, oh, I see, I understand now how that makes disability still kind of the villain there. You're, put, you're just saying it as the afterthought when of course, of course it's going to be the main part of, of who you are and how you navigate the world. And I know that more now because my daughter's 10. And so I, she, so, you know, I, she, she teaches me these things, but again, she was not talking yet when I wrote this. So, so those might be some of the, the changes I would make, but at the same time, yeah, no, you just couldn't write the same book twice. If you, even if you tried. No, no, of course not. And, you know, I think, always think it's interesting that, you know, many people say, you know, I, I wrote the book I wanted to read. Right, that I didn't find anything out there uh, literature-wise, so I wrote the thing I wanted to read, and and now I'm wondering if it's the book that you have to go back and read to remind yourself of what exactly that experience was like and why you know certain things were very emotional for you. That's actually a very good idea. I should do that because I do I do feel like <laughs> you know oh my god I should be able to answer this person and you know even remembering what that was like and it was a bit easier when my son he's six now so he was still a baby sometimes when I was counseling these women. <laughs> They're always women, actually. I've never talked to a father. And that was a bit easier, but you move away from it and, and you forget. And so I'm, I'm actually really grateful to myself that I took those meticulous notes and that I recorded it the way I did because I just would never have been able to go back there and remember. And it's sometimes, sometimes I don't want to, it was hard. So, so sometimes it's best to leave those emotions where, where they belong. <laughs> So uh, speaking of emotions and uh, relationships and family, your new book, Age of Creativity, is about your relationship with uh, your father and your father's uh, relationship, not only with you, but with his, with his art. 
and with his art making and uh, against his biographical context. I'm interested too in thinking of uh, applying your, your folklore roots with this idea of what art is and how it's made and uh, what it means to be an older artist. And I know on the back of the book that Kyle uh, McClear has called the book a radical detonation of accepted notions about aging and art. I'd like you to pick up uh, Kyle's um, blurb and run with it. What's, uh, what's the radical uh, detonation going on here? I think we have very rigid stereotypical notions of older people to begin with. I think we, and when I say we, I'm thinking particularly of North American society because this is the society I am part of. And so this is what I've been observing. I think we have pretty dim ideas of the worth of older people in general. And I think this has carried on and or over into the art world for quite some time. And it's not getting better. It doesn't seem to be making progress. It seems like that is still a completely accepted notion to look at the work of an older artist, maybe an older artist who happens to have dementia. I'm thinking of Willem de Kooning right now and see it as lesser and see it as something that's not worthy or not valuable because the artist is older or because the artist is older and happens to be living with a disease that tends to afflict older people. And so I wanted to turn it around and just look at it from a different angle and say, actually, this work is really important and is really valuable aesthetically and also for everything that the artist brings to that work from that long lived life, the wisdom and the many, many years of practice at his or her craft. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't something I came to naturally, to be honest. It was something that I was surprised by when I first had the thought about uh, my father, thinking we were at the AGO at the time and he was showing me a, a, a painting he'd done in his 20s and he was being quite critical of it. It was as if he was giving one of his students an art critique or something. And as he was doing that, I thought, how bizarre that he is a better artist in his 80s than in his than he was in his 20s. And then my second immediate thought was, wait a second, why do I think that's bizarre? <laughs> Maybe he's just ordinary. <laughs> wait, is, is there something here? And I was so taken with that idea. We were in Toronto together and I took the GO train home that night. I was already researching on my phone, you know, typing it in and trying to figure out, has anyone talked about this before? Am I, am I right? Is it true that creativity is just sustained throughout life? It doesn't take a nosedive after, depending on, <laughs> depending on where you gauge that, that nosedive. I mean, uh, now that I have done the research, people have pegged it at everything from like 30, <laughs> you know, to, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so ridiculous to, to, you know, 70 or whatever, or whatever. There's always some kind of target as to when um, creativity is supposed to decline. This is, I'm, I'm referencing studies from the 1960s right now, but we have made some progress since in, in the research of creativity and aging, but I don't know in terms of our, our stereotypical view of, of the elderly, I think we have some work to do still. <laughs> Now, I should say at this point that when you're talking about my father, we're talking about the Canadian Impressionist Tony Urquhart, right? Very well-known yes. artist and, uh, of course, uh, a professor as well, a former professor at the University of Waterloo, but known internationally as a, as a painter and a sculptor as well. Am I leaving anything out of his uh, biography? I don't think so. He's, he's, known for, he's known for his work. His work is 
as he has always said, he's never been in style, so he's never been out of style. He's quite a singular artist. He has his own style. He can't fit him into anything. And probably best known for his sculptures. They're, he called them boxes, and they are like these strange curio cabinets that you are actually supposed to open and move around. And there's these weird 3D worlds inside, kind of like landscapes in there sometimes. And that's probably what he's best known for because they are really so singular and strange. And and there's a moment in The Age of Creativity, the book, uh, where he is in a gallery moving things around and the docent is very concerned about this man touching the art. Oh, she did not like it at all. At all. And, you know, he's uh, he's actually a very gentle, jolly, twinkly kind of guy. People like him a lot. You know, he's saying, well, I'm the artist. And she's just like, I don't care. Don't do that. And she was so grumpy. And then eventually he totally won her over. (laughs) One of the ideas you, you discuss in the book is the idea of late style, that there is this idea that on the one hand seems to endorse creativity in what we're calling the third age or that extra 20 years that that one has. So the idea of late style as something that comes to an artist in their final decades and is in some ways a kind of mastery of the work. But on the other hand, contained in that idea is the fact that it is, again, there's a kind of clock ticking and you enter a stage of the late style and there's something about that as an accepted notion of art and creation that is sort of toxic at its heart. So um, can you say a little bit more about that, like ways that it is uh, inadequate, the idea of late style? Late style is really interesting because there there has been some, I think it was Saeed actually, who wrote about late style as having similar characteristics across different uh, genres of painters. There was a lighter feeling in the paintings and a sort of a heavenly quality as they inch towards the end of their lives. And I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> it's one thing that could be in there, but why does it have to be in there? Why is that a characteristic? Yes, it was like, it was, it was as if it was its own art movement. I think also we see a lot of women artists right now, that a lot of headlines saying, older women are the new art stars. And we generally, that term art stars is so often applied to young men, which is why it's a tongue in cheek kind of headline. The the toxicity of that is that these women didn't get a chance. And this is happening with black artists as well, older black artists. They they didn't get a chance to to even get their foot in the door. You know, they, they couldn't have their work shown in the galleries and then picked up by collectors or museums or, you know, they weren't feted because they weren't men or they weren't white. And so it's only now as they're in their very later years and some artists have not even been able to enjoy this because they maybe are suffering from dementia and they, they aren't aware of what's happening with their careers. Sometimes, sometimes they are, but it's not like there's a thing, like w- women are particularly <laughs> likely genetically made up to have this late style or late bloom. It's that they've been taking care of other people all their lives and they've been barred from, from entering those spaces and the gatekeepers have, have made it so that this is the only time in their life when they're finally being recognized. That ticking clock some people probably do recognize that. They are hoping to, to continue. Monet's an example with his Water Lilies series. I think he really was 
facing the end. I think he he knew this was his masterpiece and he had to finish it. And it was in some ways, uh, he was up against the clock. And what's interesting about the Water Lily series is that that certainly is magnum opus. And I think even people who don't have an interest in art could probably identify the Water Lilies, but what they wouldn't know is that he was an old man. That's when he created that work. And, and the works that we know so often from these artists are from the final periods of their life. Whether or not they they felt that they were against the clock, or maybe it was just, as I argue in the book, maybe it was just they had gotten to a place where they were the masters of their craft. They had been working at this for long enough. They had tried enough. They had failed enough. They had succeeded enough. They understood what it was they were trying to accomplish, and they had the tools and the know-how and the wisdom to do it. And so I think that would be another reason why you might see that sort of bloom or burst in the final years of an artist's life. One of the most fascinating parts of the book is, as I you mentioned earlier, your sort of up-close-and-personal look at your father's art, uh, whether it is late style or whether it is him doing exactly in many ways what he has done every day for all of his life or all, all of his life that, that you've observed. I think people are really fascinated with process, with how things get done. Can you uh, just sort of give us a couple of highlights that, of what you've observed about the way your father works? My father has an incredible work ethic. He doesn't really see it as work, though. I, he sees it as his vocation. It's just a part of life and who he is. That is art, and that's what he does. He worked, you know, every day of his life. There wasn't a day, I don't think, that he hadn't made a drawing or worked on a sculpture. He had a studio in our backyard in Wellesley that he went out to every day that I was sometimes allowed to join him in. He also had this way of prolonging the work process where he was trying to sort of tap into the unconscious and everywhere he's ever lived and everywhere I've ever lived with him, he's had a cork board that faces his place at the table where he eats and he pins his drawings in progress up on the cork board. And it's his way of being able to consider the work without really truly focusing at it. He's not sitting down at the table and looking at it and thinking, what can I change? He's hoping that the sort of back of his brain <laughs> might be working to make those changes. And this was just part of his process and it always has been and always will be. So he, in some ways, never stopped working. That's amazing. I mean, I love that story of the cork board. That's yeah, that back of the brain, you're working on it on his subconscious. And there is a moment uh, in the book where you notice that a couple of drawings are gone from the corkboard, meaning <laughs> that they have made it to the studio and are now uh, now being worked over, worked on, reconsidered at another stage of the of the project. Yes, yeah, and I should mention that he also <laughs> little folkloric reference here is that the corkboard, I'd say you tell me that as a child, but honestly, he told me that all the way into adulthood, was that that was when the good fairy would arrive at night and she would flit around and make changes to those drawings that he would then notice the next time he sat down to look at them. He understood that there was a process of magic, really, which is a part of making art. It sounds maybe a bit hokey, but you do have to allow for those surprises and bits of magic to work their way into your artistic process. Good, I like that. Uh, and uh, I think writers 
talk about that kind of magic uh, all the time, right? Fiction writers often talk about characters speaking to them and characters telling them what to do next. And poets always have, I don't know where this phrase came from. It just dropped from the sky. And so I wrote it down. So I think the idea of an extra push coming from somewhere external to you is absolutely a kind of, kind of trope in an art maker's life. But your father's process wasn't always made available to you. And there's a moment with a basement studio that uh, becomes a moment in the book. Can you tell us about that? That happened at William and Dunbar Streets in the first house that I lived in with my parents and my siblings. He had a basement studio there and the basement was not finished. It was just one of those kind of scary basements. I was not allowed to go down to that studio because the stairs were rickety and I think my mother thought I'd break my neck. But I was pretty interested in particular, my older sisters lived with us and my two brothers visited on the weekends. So anytime they visited, they all went down to the basement studio to make art together. I wanted to be a part of that, but I wasn't allowed. So I started to creep down those stairs and I was able to hide. No one knew I was there because my dad made these giant oil paintings of open graves actually. <laughs> and I was able to hide behind those canvases because they were propped up against the stairs, which had no railing. And I could spy in at what they were doing in the studio, kind of spotlit. And it was like watching a play, which was very intriguing. But of course, as a play, you're in the audience, you're not a part of it. But then one time I got too interested and I pushed against the paintings <laughs> and the paintings fell and I went with them. And I have this very clear memory of falling. And my first thought is not a fear of falling, but the fear of having ruined my father's art, which was a big no-no in our house. My dad's a lovely person and he's not a scary man, but you, you don't want to ruin his art. And then I wrote about it uh, for a piece I wrote on my dad. And I showed him the piece and he told me that it never happened. He said, I never fell down onto those paintings. And that's just like a misremembered, but I'm convinced it did happen. And I asked him what to do. I said, well, do I need to take this out of the, the piece? Is it wrong? The fact checker in me started to panic, but he had this generous response and said, you know what, this is your story and it's your memory and you get to write it however you like, which is something I, I've sort of carried through in the book in, in general, that it is my story. And of course I, st I stuck to the facts, it's nonfiction, but I did write it however I liked. <laughs> I'm gonna ask you now to actually read from the book and give us a, give us a little taste of it. The section I'm going to read is actually the first two pages of the prologue, and the prologue is called Still Life. I saw the two of us framed in the mirror behind the bar. The mirror's surface was smoky and dim, an effect of the candlelight flickering from the tables behind us. There were several rows of glass liquor bottles on the counter below the mirror, as well as a silver-lidded mason jar filled with sugar cubes, a modest pile of white napkins, and a half-peeled lemon in a white porcelain bowl. It was as if we'd stumbled into a modern version of a Flemish still life. Those highly realistic tableau of abundance from the 17th century, where iridescent bunches of grapes nestle beside oysters, quivering in their open shells. Half-poured wine sat stilled in glassware that is godlike and shiny, and the gem of a lemon's interior is exposed by its uncurled peel. Who is that old guy in the mirror? My father asked. He was winking at himself, at me, at the passage of time. I looked at my phone and captured an image of us. My father at 84, his face thinner than I'd seen it before, his beard as white as his hair, a tan cashmere scarf thrown across his shoulder, and me at 41, half his age, a sweep of brown hair hanging into my eyes, a self-conscious half smile, a string of red beads around my neck. 
He was looking up and I was looking down, concentrating on taking the photograph of our reflection, adjusting my lens to include the lemon, the sugar, the white napkins and the glass bottles, then waiting for a flicker of light to illuminate our faces. The Dutch still lifes were a record of abundance, of wealth, look at what we've reaped, and of talent, but they also marked an important shift in the story of art. For the first time, there was no discernible subject at the heart of these works. There was no Greek myth, no biblical prophecy. Instead, they were a study of shape and form, light and shadow, and of objects grouped together in space. In this way, the Dutch artists took the first steps towards abstraction in art. They created antecedents to larger studies of light and impressionism, of form and cubism, of the abstract non-figurative works that followed from the 19th century onwards. If I looked long enough at these still lifes, I could see my father's abstract expressionist paintings, those towering canvases that were the backdrop to my childhood. Thank Thanks. you so much. I love that idea of the, uh, of the portrait of the father and daughter and uh, of the still life as well. And it makes me think a little bit about, well, when we talk about abundance and talent and writing a family biography slash autobiography memoir, the family is objects in space and time as well, right? That I would never say the family's a still life. In fact, it's a very moving life. But that idea that, you know, these things change as uh, the way we look at them and we study it as, yeah, as, as a picture of abundance, particularly abundance of creativity. You discuss create as a verb and creativity as a noun here. And I'm, I'm interested in, in how you might think about uh, your family of origin as a uh, as a way to talk about these, particularly since two of your brothers were visual artists, and of course, so, so uh, is your father. And of course, your mother is uh, the novelist Jane Urquhart, uh, who I've been reading. You know, I, I thought it was for do two decades, but really, I guess it's gotta be three when I think about it. I think I first started reading her in the 90s. Your nonfiction books line up beside the work of both your parents, um, and in some ways will be read or with or against them. So yeah, so my question is about that. You know, I am quite alone in my birth family in being the only uh, maker of art, and that is a particular position. Um, but what about the family as an artistic community? What are its frustrations and benefits? It was certainly writing and and um, visual art were really where I did best in in school or in where my interests lay. I was always a huge reader. It was, and I still am. It's kind of really the most important thing in my life besides my children and my family, of course. That, but that would have been encouraged for me from the beginning. I did know that writing was was where my strengths were in terms, I'm just thinking of as a child or, you know, where what, what people tell you, you you're good at, uh, teachers. And, and then I would always wonder, well, are they telling me that because of who my parents are? Or do I really have this talent? I'm really not sure. But, um, <laughs> you know, you'll never know, you just keep going. And, um, and so my parents were always supportive when I made decisions that were, or maybe other parents might find impractical, such as getting a PhD in folklore, maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Best decision of my life, least practical. Well, not really. I shouldn't say it was the least practical, but it, it, it was unusual, certainly. It's one of those degrees that seems impractical at the time, but you've had very practical application of it. 
Yes, exactly. And that's a good point. And that's, that's kind of what I was just thinking, well, maybe it's not that impractical because I actually use it in all of my work, everything that I've done since. So, so there's a lot of support coming from an artistic family. Nobody's going to say, what do you think you're doing? Don't do that. You know, you don't, you're not ever, like I never did any physical, like we never went camping or skiing or like anything like that. The kind of stuff that my husband seems to have done with his family was just not happening with mine because my parents were really focused on their work. And so they didn't really let a lot interrupt that. And so I guess that could be a drawback, but I, um, I'm kind of an introvert and I'm pretty good at entertaining myself. So that was never a real problem for me growing up. It was actually kind of a relief, particularly as I moved on and aged and my siblings were no longer living with us. And so being an only child, it's, it's good to have parents who are are very focused on their art so they can leave you alone so yeah though I think there are definitely it was is definitely beneficial and they gave me so many tools to work with you know my mom gave me literature and promoted my love of reading and and writing and my dad gave me this whole world of art to draw on and it's so wonderful to have that background so it's it's mostly a benefit I think I think the drawbacks can really only be the external interference where people feel that they can say whatever they like to you because your parents have a certain stature or you know they're they're maybe a well-known name in, in some circles and so people say outrageous things to me that I have to just graciously accept. <laughs> what? What are people saying? Oh well you know just like very often there'll be some often a man who will say well I am not a fan of your mother's writing, let me tell you, that sort of thing. <laughs> wow. Mostly, mostly <laughs> what I hear is, I love your mother's writing. I love it, I love it, I love it. And that has its own weirdness too, because I never really know what to say. I never know if I should say thank you <laughs> because I had nothing to do with it. Right. <laughs> but it's a nice sentiment. So it's really, it's just a kindness. It's fine. I uh, want to give you uh, another opportunity to read from the book. I'm going to go right to the very end, but it's okay. It's not a spoiler. I'm going to read a short piece from the epilogue now, and the epilogue is called Sunset. My father was visiting, and we were out for a walk with the dog. It was early January 2020, and unseasonably warm. Water pooled along the sidewalk beneath our feet. There was some ice, so I took my father's arm. My mother was running errands. My children were at school. Andrew at work. The morning was quiet. The dog stopped to sniff a crusted snowbank and we stopped with him. It had been nearly a year since my father had his pacemaker installed and a few years since his doctor had raised the possibility of dementia. Time had moved on. We were speaking about the undergraduate course I'd recently started teaching. It was about writing, but visual art had crept in. I've been sharing images of artworks with my writing students. Which ones? Mark Rothko's orange, red and yellow. This was an abstract painting from the early 60s with hovering squares of color as bright and as startling as a hallucination. My father had known Rothko's work since he was a young art student. Sunset, my father said, which is how art writers often describe the ethos of this piece. Who else? Morris Lewis, his most famous one, I said, forgetting the title of the painting. Lewis had been one of the earliest color field paintings, Rothko's contemporary. My father paused, looked up at the sky, which was gray and without texture. Then he turned back to me. Mostly blank canvas. The lines of color move in on the diagonal from either side. Yes, that's the one. I thought back to the previous month when I'd accompanied my dad to visit his geriatrician. A nurse had administered a series of memory tests. In one, he was given a grouping of unrelated words to remember. 
to hold on to, she'd said. When asked to repeat the list of words, a few minutes later, he'd shaken his head. He would just be a guess at this point. And yet, today, on this dull, overcast morning, he pulled effortlessly from his image bank. Sunset, mostly blank canvas, the lines of color move in on the diagonal from either side. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that idea of, uh, of his memory of the art being so crisp and so clear. Thanks for reading that. I really appreciate it. And I, I really want to know now uh, how visual art appears in your nonfiction writing classroom. How do you, how do you use it? Well, I use visual art as, as a backdrop for my PowerPoint presentations. So, uh, you know, while I'll be speaking, maybe I'll have a painting, maybe, you know, one of the color field paintings that I mentioned in the passage I just read as, as a backdrop for the students to look at as I'm speaking, as much as I want them to pay attention and to learn from what I have to share with them, I think it should also be a space where they can be allowed to daydream. It's a class about creativity. So being able to, to drift off and, and look at that painting and think about something else and maybe come up with some, some new creative piece to incorporate in, into the course. I think that's an important aspect of having the visual art there and having the students engage with it. And then the other way that I bring visual art in is by having the students draw a self-portrait every day. And this isn't, uh, this is, uh, I have learned this from Linda Berry, who is a cartoonist and creativity guru, and she's a teacher. So this is her technique that I'm using where every day that the students come in, they have to draw a self-portrait of themselves. And it only takes about two to three minutes because I know that people who haven't done any artwork before, they can be quite self-conscious about it. They always say, oh, I, I can't draw, I can't draw. And that's not true, we can all draw. And there's no mark attached to this. This is just a purely creative exercise. And I find it kind of loosens the students up in some way. They, they're laughing all the time because they think they've done a silly drawing. They can't, they can't get the nose right or whatever, but it's an interesting assignment to, to begin the day with. And it gets them thinking about who they are and the themselves and, and it gets them doing something creative. After asking permission, I would take a big group portrait and then the following class we would <laughs> we would begin and there would be all their smiling faces there and they would think that was funny too. And then also actually I had them draw each other before we had our first in-class a workshop. Yes, the workshop. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. Exactly. Yes. And so I had them draw the person next to them because I wanted them to think about someone beyond themselves and think about the care taken to, to draw an image of somebody. And I just wanted the, everyone to enter into the first workshop with a feeling of camaraderie. So uh, yeah, you know, visual art has, has definitely crept in. And, and I've also used the visual art as a prompt. So a, a student might feel like their stories aren't important they have a hard time writing about themselves sometimes. So if you give them a work of art or a photograph, then it will prompt them to write about uh, that image. But really, because it's coming from them, it is really about themselves, ultimately. It's a really important conversation to have in the, in the creative writing classroom about uh, the importance of people's stories. And I remember the first time I uh, was teaching uh, creative nonfiction, I was shocked to find that so few people knew that that was... Uh, like a genre they could have access to. And I had a student tell me once, oh, I thought I could write about my story only if I changed all the names and everything that happened. And I went, well, then how is it yours? <laughs> like, how is it about you if you changed all of that? But that was the kind of pressure they were working under. They were trying to do 
you know, trying to write fiction and nonfiction, but deny all of the genre markers of both. And I thought, okay, I, I couldn't write under those conditions. And so they were very happy to hear about this thing called creative nonfiction. Often it's those students who just ended up there by chance who really surprise you with what they end up delivering. I used another Linda Berry exercise, the X page exercise where, oh, yeah. you know, the, it's, it's a sort of a process. You, you sort of enter into an image from your past and with prompts, initially you generate sort of the details of that image and then you're given a certain amount of time to write it up. It's less scary, I think, once you have all that information that you've gathered and you've been led along. We just do these in class, but I find sometimes students will, that will be what one of their final projects becomes, what they've started in, in class and they needed to be led there, but what they deliver is so surprising and amazing. For those of you who haven't read Linda Berry, I would very much recommend her book, Syllabus. And part of that is because Emily, as, as you were talking about bringing drawing to a creative writing class, she brings writing to a drawing class. And people are saying, why am I writing this? And she's saying, because you need both, right? And, uh, and I think in some ways you're saying, because you need both. And it comes back to this idea of um, creativity as this kind of unreachable noun, but creation itself, to create, uh, is, a, is an active verb. I hadn't considered that before I started doing the research for the age of creativity, but I noticed with the early studies about aging and creativity, there was a lot of value placed on the output rather than the act. Um, you know, the output being a painting or a poem or a play. And of course, that's really important. Um, but to create is, it's, it is an active state and it, it is a verb. And I think if we put too much importance on the output, it can be sort of debilitating. You can be creative in the way you gaze at something or in the way that you garden or the way that you are simply thinking or arranging your knickknacks on your mantelpiece. It doesn't need to be this very solid output. I think we should place more importance on the act. And I think really that is the big mistake that all of the researchers, earlier researchers made on trying to quantify creativity. Well, it's impossible. You don't have anything to solid to quantify. And especially too, then that I mean, makes the big error of suggesting that uh, late style is about productivity. I mean, what if late style, problematic term that it is, what if it was about thought? right? What if it was about uh, kinds of attention, you know, all these kinds of things. When we think about that third age, the you know, extra couple decades that the people are living now, and we only think it's about productivity, then it's just capitalism again, right? We're living longer in order to, uh, to sell more things. Yes, exactly. Rather than quality of life and interest and engagement. I mean, you can be creative in your relationships with other people. There are so many ways to be creative and it, it isn't also simply relegated to the realm of the arts either, which I think people also get a bit muddled with. Well, you, I'm not creative because I don't make art, but everyone's creative. I'm going to ask you about what's the most surprising thing that you've discovered about the writing life. And I'm thinking of, you know, something that you didn't dream was going to be important when you were thinking of making your life as a writer. And maybe for you, this is a difficult question because you've got to observe the life of a writer quite up close in terms of, uh, in terms of your mother's career. Was there anything surprising? As much as I observed my dad actually making art, I did very much observe my mom 
I don't know if promoting is the right word, but there's, there's a certain amount of stuff that goes along with being a writer, but, um, I did go on tour with her a lot. And so I kind of knew what that looked like. You know, I'd been to plenty of her readings. In terms of surprises, I wouldn't say there are huge surprises in this whole sort of the general writing industry. But I think even in the last few years, what I found surprising is how it can change. And that's really about aging as well, different stages of your life. So when I was younger and I was working more as a journalist, I had goals that I felt very strongly about and the style of writing and everything had to be very journalistic. And then I sort of started moving away from that. And I'm, you know, you look back and I'm like, I'm surprised, but I, I felt so strongly about that. And then there was sort of my academic period and, and then I've moved away from academic style as well. So I guess maybe it's, it's that progress that you're a different writer with every book. I think that was surprising. I was a different writer with the age of creativity than I was with Beyond the Pale. And again, with um, what I'm working on now, I feel like I'm a completely different writer. And a lot of the work that went into the book that I'm working on now happened before the age of creativity. And I'm just changing it all because I'm a different person now. I'm a different writer. <laughs> and so I think those are those are big surprises to me. So speaking yeah. of multiple books, I, I hear that you're working on a book called Ordinary Wonder Tales. Is that the working title? That is the working title. I think I'm going to stick with it. Um, wonder Tales, it's a different word for fairy tales, most often used in Ireland, but I really like it. And then adding ordinary in front of it, mm. it just sort of subverts it a little and, and changes it a little. And I think it, it's both a title and a description of what I'm doing. Can you uh, read us a, a little bit, gift us with a, a preview? Yes. So I'm just going to set it up a little. Um, it is also nonfiction and it's a collection of basically essays. I've really, really heavily worked in my folklore background and understanding of the world throughout these, these essays. This particular essay is called The Plague Legends and the whole book is not about the pandemic, just this one essay. I found um, myself returning to the plague legends, uh, disaster legends that I had uh, studied in grad school and then looking for more when in the early stages of the pandemic when we were facing our own plague and looking to them for answers and then I start after I read them I would rewrite them myself and they started coming to me in voices that were more contemporary than those legends that I, I had known and with all legends legend collections in folklore they are told by a person they're collected by a folklore so it would have been a plague legend told by someone in the 1920s in Norway or something like that but the, the voices started changing for me I'll just read the first three sections so they have little titles um, so the main title is the plague legends and um, the first smaller title is plague is ferried across the river she wears a red skirt she is sometimes a goat her name when she has a name is pasta she is a hag. She is beautiful. She is a woman. She is a man. She is two people, an old man and an old woman, or she is a boy and a girl. She is the ferryman's passenger and he recognizes her face. He pleads for his life. He is a kind man. She can see this. She relents. She says, well, since you're so nice, I'll see what I can do. She speaks in an upbeat, almost cheery voice. You're probably not on my list anyhow. She unfurls her scroll. She scans the names. She comes to a stop. He is on her list. Oh, I'm sorry, she says, and she is sincere. She is sorry. She lifts her staff, points it at the ferryman's heart. His heart stops beating. He falls. He is spared, not of death, but of suffering. So that's something. 
the scroll arrives. The scroll arrives on our doorstep on a Friday morning in March. Our neighbor, who is an artist, leaves it as a gift. In an email, he writes that he hopes this ream of blank paper will give us something to do with our two children while we are sequestered inside because of the pandemic. On the first afternoon that we have the scroll, my daughter, S, who is nine, cuts a long sheath and claims a corner of the kitchen floor to work as far away from me and her little brother as possible. The first mural that my son R paints is of the school where he attends kindergarten, which has been closed for five days now. There are 80 windows on its facade. We count, not from memory, but from an image that I find on the internet. Now there are two schools in my home, one on the computer screen and one taking shape in the mural that my son is painting. There is a third school in an effort to keep the children entertained. The third school mostly involves painting and thanks to my neighbor's kindness, now we will never run out of paper to paint on. Plague as person or animal with broom or rake. One, if you see her approaching your village and she's carrying a rake, it's not good, but it's better than if she's carrying a broom. If she's carrying a broom, no one will survive. Two, there was that one pale old guy who came by he was, well, I'd say he was bird-like, but the question is, was that old guy the plague or did he just spread it? Who knows? Thanks very much for that. I, I look forward to, uh, to reading this. And, you know, I should have known that a folklorist would have lots of images for the plague. Haven't been uh, coming to the cultural floor. That's, uh, that's awesome. We're coming to the end of our time, and I wanted to ask you a, a question about uh, living in uh, the Grand River region, which is where we started our conversation. And uh, the question is, if you could have it your way, and if money were no object, how would you promote or support emerging writers in the Grand River region? You know, I was thinking about older mentors, and, and by older, I mean senior, just based on, on the research and work that I have done. And I think it would be really great to pair up emerging writers with senior writers, but actual senior, not just um, people at the height of their career. I mean, people who are really in their 70s and 80s and, and maybe their 90s and see what could come of that. One of the things that I found frustrating when I was doing my research about older artists was that whole where we peg emerging as. And so I've always thought it would be so great to start some kind of amazing fund for emerging writers over the age of 75. I think of women in particular who are having to look after everyone all their lives at those, those older art stars. Well, they became themselves and those older art stars when, when they were given the time and the space to do it. And so maybe we could create something that would give an older emerging artist the time and the space to create what it is they have been waiting so long to create. It would be lovely to, to start something like that with lots of money. The reason I add in, if money were no object, because of course, that's the very first thing we think, oh, well, it's not possible because there's no money. But, you know, we need to dream big. So thank you. I think that's a great dream. I like it a lot. This is the end of our time. I want to thank you, Emily, for, for being here. And I want to make sure that people know uh, how they can get their hands on your books. The Age of Creativity is published by House of Anansi Press. I would imagine it's available at Wordsworth Books. Is that right? It is available at Wordsworth Books. Yes, that's where okay. I would I would go in the region to to find the newest book. Well, it was lovely to see you again and to uh, to talk about your new newest work. And I uh, look forward to Ordinary Wonder Tales.
Thanks, Tannis. It was so nice chatting with you and seeing you again, too. Watershed Writers is produced by Francis Roberts Riley with technical production by Brendan Highmore. Our first season is hosted by CKWR 98.5 in Waterloo Region with support from Region of Waterloo Arts Fund and in partnership with Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Our theme music is Water by Alicia Brilla from her album, Rooted. What do we get?